Welcome back to the podcast, gentle listeners. This is First Impressions, a podcast about the genius of Jane Austen. We are fans of Jane Austen. We are also fans of drinking wine while talking about Jane Austen. (laughs) And we're here just to share our love of this amazing author and give a big middle finger to all the haters. Uh, I'm Maggie, and I am joined, of course, by my good friend Kristen, who is our resident Austin expert. Hi, everyone. And we have a very special guest this evening. We're all very excited to welcome to the table to share his unique views, Kristen's husband, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast, Yay. Kevin. Hey, this is the Gator. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kevin, we talked about this. Normal voice. You can't be the gator. It's not the morning zoo. It's not the morning zoo. All right, I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, So just uh, just to recap where we are, we are continuing our discussion of Mansfield Park, which uh, we learned is Kristen's favorite. My very favorite Of Jane Austen's novels. Of all time. Of all time. Not just Jane. Wow. Okay, so I better rein it in and be nice. (laughs) That's right. So I'm going to toss it over to Kristen. She's going to briefly recap what we talked about in our last week's episode, the first Mansfield Park, to kind of catch everyone up as to where we are. So take it, Kristen. Well, thank you, Margaret. Um, Last time, when we approached Mansfield Park, um, we started with a plot summary. So if you're not familiar with the novel, we're not going to do that again just because it it was quite a long, you know, amount of time. If you were able to listen to that episode, that would be very helpful for you. And after giving a plot summary, we talked in rather abstract terms about the novel and about its relationship to feminism and whether the characters were really who we thought they were and whether we were really supposed to like the main character, Fanny Price, who is pretty much universally loathed by modern readers for her le- her spinelessness, etc. And I don't think that's too strong a term either. I there are a lot of people who are very passionate about Austen. And Fanny is kind of the the Fanny of their jokes, mm-hmm. if you will. And I, I relate to her. I love her as a character, but I understand where people are coming from. So we talked a lot about that. And we talked about the three main female characters, how Fanny represents Regency society's perfect woman, how Mary Crawford sort of represents maybe Austen's ideal woman, and how Mariah Bertram sort of represents a woman who's perfect on the outside, but sort of a shell on the inside. But um, one thing I noticed when, you know, when we were listening to episode one over again is that we did not go chronologically. And this time as we approach the book, I want to go chronologically. And I have um, quite a few clips this time to play to illustrate the points that we're making. We're going to focus this time on just um, f- four or five chapters of the book which is, I think, one of Austen's greatest set pieces, which is the theatricals that take place at Mansfield Park. If you weren't familiar with the book, you may not have known that a huge turning point in the book is when they actually put on a play in their house. And this is sort of a major uh, set piece in the novel where a lot of important things happen and where we see our main character, Fanny Price, struggle a lot and have sort of a descent into madness, as I I put it. It's so dramatic. I mean, we all know that uh, Kristen, from our first episode where we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, we all know Kristen's background with Austen. And, you know, she relates very emotionally to it and uses it as kind of a benchmark in her life. Uh, So, Kevin, is it... Tell us about your appreciation for Austen. When did you discover it? Uh, I actually never read any Austen prior to marrying Kristen. 
Um, which didn't stop her from marrying me, which was to her, <laughs> to her credit. Um, so uh, after we were married, you know, I saw her reading it constantly. Um, and uh, she recommended uh, Pride and Prejudice, and so I read that, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I've read Mansfield Park uh, and enjoyed that as well. Uh, for me, um, I actually like the humor uh, of Austin mm-hmm. a lot. That uh, comes through to me more um, than, you know, an emotional connection. It's just that uh, she's very good at, I think, capturing personality types and um, sort of puncturing pomposity. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I can just picture it where... You know, newlyweds, and Ben comes like, hey, Kristen. And Kristen's like, sweetie, I'm reading Mansfield Park. Come on. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty much every night. <laughs> Kevin is a humorist. He That is um, the, the art that he likes to consume is mostly humor. And so I'm so glad that somebody got it. You know, that Austin's not just love and bonnets. It's really funny. She's a really insightful, brilliant writer of people. I would say there's a lot of kind of biting social satire that goes on. And I think a lot of people, it goes over, not to say that I am, you know, a a literature genius. Uh, So some of it goes over my head too. But because we're not living in that time period anymore, some of it is probably lost on a casual reader. Uh, So you really have to kind of dig into it and then it helps to know some of the context of what was going on to really truly appreciate. I think it's so mm-hmm. true. And then a lot of people say, well, what is, um, you know, Regency society? Yeah, she's criticizing it, but what does that have to do with your life? And I think when it comes to actually consuming the art, the brilliance of her as an observer of people is so amazing that when you read her books, you're like, I know these people. I was just going to say, I can't imagine there is Anyone who could say they don't know someone who's like Mary Crawford or they don't know someone who's like Mariah or even Fanny. I mean, these are, I don't want to say archetypes because they're so much more rich and varied than that. But people don't essentially change even from hundreds of years. (laughs) And so I think, and that's kind of what's so fascinating, right? Uh, So we can read her books and see in these characters people we know now. And everybody knows a Mrs. Bennett. Mm-hmm. Right, everybody, everybody does. Knows yeah, everybody knows Mrs. Norris too. Yeah. In a certain, degree. Mm-hmm. that's not very nice. But in a, to a certain <laughs> degree, um, um, if you were to compare yourself actually to Austin's characters, is there one that you identify with more than the rest, Kevin? Ooh. Uh, clearly, Mr. Darcy. Oh, clearly. Well, you all can't see Kevin, so let me describe him to you. He's tall, <laughs> he dark hair, a noble mien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. He abhors <laughs> any kind of uh, falsehood. Um, he's bearded, bespeckled. I'm, I'm always wearing a wet linen shirt. <laughs> Although tonight it is of a plaid consistency. Still translucent. Though. And on really, on really hot days, he just kind of goes out into the backyard and dives into the pond <laughs> that is back there. Um, he's a really good sport. I would say he's a Henry Tilney. Oh. Which is from Northanger <gasps> Abbey, which he also and he has is not one read. of my favorites, gentle listeners. Yeah. Just you wait. Just like we said last time, characters named Henry denote a really charming, awesome guy mm. because Austin's brother Henry. And I think you're the Henry Tilney of 
of life. You're misogynist, but in a funny way. No. <laughs> so as you said, I haven't read Northanger Abbey yet, but this guy sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> when Kevin makes his misogynistic jokes, it doesn't make me want to flip the table. It kind of makes me want to be like, you're so cute. Look yeah. at you. And he's not really, of course, he's not really no. a misogynist, but he likes no, to Because Kristen would have beat that out of him by now. He, no. he likes to, to make jokes about how he is, so you can, it illustrates how stupid mis- really misogyny yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of levels going on to Kevin's jokes. I've been playing this con for a long time. <laughs> He's playing the long game. <laughs> on your deathbed, I'm just going to whisper I was a misogynist. <laughs> Let's hope he's more a Henry Tilney than a Henry Crawford. Oh, let's hope. Okay. All right, so let's get to it. This, um, we are going to talk, as I said, about a set piece in the book that has to do with theatricals. And then the question is, why did they put on this play? And so, as you recall, um, what happened last time is that they all went to Southerton, Mr. Rushworth's estate. He's the idiot who's engaged to Mariah Bertram. They all love talking about how to improve right, the prospects and the estate. estate. So Henry Crawford starts to seduce the engaged Mariah Bertram, and it's really <laughs> it's, oh, opinion. that's what all that talk about the haha was, right? <laughs> yes, it's right. It was a lot of sexual symbolism, but now they're all back at Mansfield Park, and the eldest son Tom, who hasn't really appeared in the book a lot to this point, is now home. Now Tom is born to be. Um, expensive and trifling. Basically, he knows he's going to inherit. He's trifling. He's trifling. (laughs) I'm just keeping it real. Maggie's here to keep it real. (laughs) And um, he knows he's going to inherit all of Mansfield Park. His younger brother, Edmund, is going to inherit none of it and has to go be a clergyman. Um, So Tom is just, his life is just gallivanting about England, having fun, going to horse races and whatever. I mean, this is basically what Kevin does. So I'm sure Kevin has some He's always down at the racetrack. Um, And Tom um, meets a guy, Mr. Yates. Mr. Yates. And then they have like a passing acquaintance. And Tom's like, oh, take Mansfield in your way the next time you're in town. And, you know, Mr. Yates is one of those very literal people. So he comes. And he's like, here I am. I just came from a place where they were doing theatricals. And it was awesome. But we couldn't finish them out. We got interrupted. So this first clip is about him telling his his audience, the collected Bertrams and Fanny Price, about how he was trying to do this play, how his group was trying to do this play, and they got interrupted by the death of a grandmother of one of, of the, the main participant. It is not worth complaining about, but to be sure, the poor old dowager could not have died at a worse time. And it is impossible to help wishing that the news could have been suppressed for just the three days we wanted. It was but three days, and being only a grandmother, and all happening two hundred miles off, I think there would have been no great harm, and it was suggested, I know. So this is the genesis of the idea, but I want you all to notice that it's rooted in extreme selfishness. You know, a woman died, and all he can complain about is that they couldn't finish their theatricals. And when Tom Bertram speaks, he's like, well, the jointure may comfort him, which means, well, he's going to inherit some money. So, you know, <laughs> that's the upside. And all they can talk about is their own selfish concerns. And so, I don't know, I can't, oh, okay, we'll talk more about Yates, I'm sure, later. But the thing is with Yates is we all, I feel like he right there is kind of saying something that would probably occur to most people, but it's one of those things that you never say. 
Like if you have plans and the tragedy happens, but you're kind of disconnected from it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so sad. You know, what can I do? Is everything all right? And then later you're probably going to be like, oh. That sucked. You know, that sucked. We were going to do this great thing. But you don't go up to people and then say, like, oh, why did they have to tell? Why couldn't we just, you know, pretend that she hadn't knocked off for three more days so we could have our play? Um, So I think that it's kind of like selfishness that almost all of us can relate to, but we probably don't. Nobody wants to hear about your dinner reservations on September 12th. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's really nothing else to say. No. <laughs> and, and when Edmund, who, as you remember, Edmund is very correct and proper and religious, and when he hears of the plan to get up a theater at Mansfield, he's horrified. And it one of the things that makes Mansfield Park difficult to translate to a modern day audience is that nobody today thinks it's immoral at all to like put on a little play, like no big deal. But what he has a threefold problem with it. And he says, in the first place, okay, what's happening right now is their father, Sir Thomas, is on his way back from Antigua. He is in a certain amount of constant danger. And as we remember back then, there's a very real chance that, you know, he was just going to die on the voyage back by a storm, by a French privateer, which he actually does encounter, we learn later. Anyway, and so Edmund says, you know, this shows a huge lack of feeling on my father's part. Moreover, it was very uncouth for um, gentlewomen, women of, of the cla- upper classes, to act. It just wasn't done. And um, so he says that, too. He's like, you know, Sir Thomas, our father, would not want his daughter's acting plays. I know that he would hate the idea of it. Tom, you really can't do it. And thirdly, you're talking about building a theater. They actually build a theater. These people are hardcore. They hire well, this a is how carpenter. Bored they are. Yeah, exactly. And they hire a carpenter and they hire a scene painter. And Edmund again is like, "This is inappropriate to take liberties like this with my father's house, our father's house." But Tom says, "Hey, I'm going to inherit this house. Okay, I think I can be pretty careful. I think I know what I want to do with it. If anybody wants to come over to my house and build a theater, so I come home from work and there's a fully created theater, go for it. That would be amazing. Okay. Yeah. Challenge accepted. I'll give you a key. Do it, girl. It'll be like a puppet theater. Because I live in a one-bedroom condo. But it'll be a theater, by God. Kevin is already dressed for the part. Yeah. Yeah. Of the lumberjack. And a lumberjack carpenter <laughs> shirt. The moist lumberjack carpenter. Hey, Kevin, is, uh, don't you think you'd be more comfortable if you uh, took that shirt off when you're working with those two-by-fours? I don't think anyone else would be more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what this needs is more awkward. <laughs> so, what happens next? Well, they have to pick a play. And this sets up the... Um, I, th- I think this is an amazing passage that we're going to listen to next because we're seeing what's happening through the eyes of Fanny Price. Now, people accuse Fanny of be- having no sense of humor, and um, I think this is a moment where we see a little bit of her being amused at selfishness, at selfishness more or less disguised. And what happens throughout this set piece of the play is Selfishness disguised is a huge theme in it, so I could have you play that that clip. No peace could be proposed that did not supply somebody with a difficulty. 
and on one side or the other it was a continual repetition of, "'Oh, no, that will never do. Let us have no ranting tragedies. Too many characters. Not a tolerable woman's part in the play. Anything but that, my dear Tom. It would be impossible to fill it up. One could not expect anybody to take such a part. Nothing but buffoonery from beginning to end. That might do, perhaps, but for the low part.' If I must give my opinion, I have always thought it the most insipid play in the English language. I do not wish to make objections. I shall be happy to be of any use, but I think we could not choose worse. Fanny looked on and listened, not unamused to observe the selfishness which, more or less disguised, seemed to govern them all, and wondering how it would end. For her own gratification, she could have wished that something might be acted, for she had never seen even half a play— but everything of higher consequence was against it. So we learn that uh, Fanny is an observer of silly behavior, and she's amused by this montage that Austin puts together of people being selfish and making these little cutting side comments. I do not wish to make objections, but it's the most insipid play in the English language. I think that's definitely a theme of Austin, too, and it's spelled out. We talked about it when we were discussing Pride and Prejudice, uh, you know, Mr. Bennett says our neighbors exist to, <laughs> for sport for us, and yeah. they, they laugh at us. us. And, and we've turn. talked about how um, Lizzie also kind of takes delight at the uh, ridiculousness of the people around her. And so I think that's kind of um, Austin's bag, pointing that out. Because this is, the, these, this is the social circle she runs in. This is how people are. So it's kind of her shtick to point out our disguised selfishness. Oh, I really love that. It's really great. And that's, that's where so much of her humor comes from. But as we said, people today are just as selfish. They're just a little less polite about it. Kevin, did you get... That is a really nice plaid shirt, although it's a little insipid for my taste. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> insipid is the new vocab word you can drop. That cuts it the quick. <laughs> uh, it's the new fetch. And if you, actually. Um, if you don't know what it means, it actually means flavorless. So it used to be more of an insult than it is today. In fact... Funny thing about the word insipid, Austin's mother used it to um, describe Fanny Price as a character. Mm-hmm. She's like, I find Fanny insipid. And that's why Austin killed her mother. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a separate podcast about the Austin mysteries, <laughs> which is going to be like Murder, She Wrote, where, uh, actually I should make this a TV show, where Jane Austen solves murders. Um, in her small town. There is such England. a market for Austin sequels, and I just think that you have hit on... Wouldn't that be great, though? We're, I would watch the shit out of that. It's like Miss Fisher's Mysteries, are but all set in, Austin, in Regency England, and she solves crime. And there's, of course, a detective that she works with, a chief inspector. And there will, of course, be unresolved sexual tension. How big are sideburns? Crazy unresolved <laughs> sexual intention. Crazy sideburns. <laughs> So Mutton big. chops, if you will. Naturally. Burnside. I'm fanning style. myself right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to contact HBO immediately. Mm. And um, so let me ask you, though, this about the play. You recently listened to the book. When they were in the part of when they were doing the theatricals, mm-hmm. you actually wrote me an email. And you said, God, these people need to get over their damn theatricals. <laughs> and once again, you were listening to the most boring audiobook recording on earth. Um, it was in the public domain, Kristen. And Look, that's fine. We, we get what we can, okay? That's fine. And um, we, we're not all I'm such an idiot because I should have people. introduced the first clip by saying, 
I should have introduced this clip by saying this audiobook is by a woman named Karen Savage, who has an amazing reading voice, and it is available in the public domain. Well, on, shit. On LibriVox. You should have told me. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I used to. I only discovered it. But it was it. like a group recording. I thought yeah. it was very nice. That I did not have any pro- complaints. I don't know why you got the Gilbert Gottfried recording. <laughs> I just, I just really like him in Aladdin. I thought that he was just not given full potential in his roles, and I wanted to give it a shot. His Mrs. Norris was astounding. <laughs> yeah, I bet she sounded a little bit like Gilbert Gottfried. She was her soul is Gilbert Gottfried. Um, but were you confused about Lover's Vows? Were you wondering about what the play was about? Not really. I mean, I don't. To my recollection, Austin doesn't really delve too much into the details of the plot of the play. I know that you know them because Kristen knows everything. Um, but I uh, I did know, you know, there are couplings. There are three couples, I believe, which, of course, is rife for dramatic events in the story within a story, if you will. Um, um, who's going to play who? Who's going to be paired with who? Uh, so I wasn't confused. Okay, when good. I was listening to no been... more than my usual level of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not lucky I'm here to dispel any conflu- confusion that may be left. Because, listeners, if you are not familiar with Lover's Vows, it is important that I tell you two things up front. Um, they choose to play Lover's Vows, and it contains uh, a couple of characters, Frederick and Agatha. These characters are filled by Mr. Crawford and Mariah, who you may remember are carrying on an illicit sort of affair under the nose of Mr. Russell. Now, let me just ask here. Do you think they are actively having sexual relations with one another? Because I feel like they probably just sneak away and, like, make out. As a reader in the Regency Times, we cannot assume that they did do anything but embrace. And okay. that's, that's very... Um, you know, forbidden. But that was scandalous then. It was, I mean, you would not, when you were engaged with someone else, you would not wander off into the gross grounds yeah, of Southerton and embrace. It's a little bit iffy. Um, you know, but Austin wrote so much sexual imagery into that scene. Yeah. But um, the reason that they're so into playing Agatha and Frederick, Mariah plays Agatha and Frederick plays, uh, I mean, Mar- Mr. Crawford plays Frederick, That's a mother and son relationship. Agatha is a mother to Frederick. However, in the first scene, these characters embrace multiple times. And so she has to clasp her son to her heaving bosom. Yes. And so this is an excuse. Kevin looks very interested. For them to touch each other all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's sexual iniquity. They get to touch each other. So. In in regents in the Regency world, this is a scandalous thing to sort of embrace in public. And that's why like actors are like low, you know, they're very low class people. And so to act in one's own home is a little objectionable as well. And so Mr Mr. Crawford and Mariah are gonna be playing a lot of scenes where he presses her hand to his heart and they embrace and they just love each other, you know. Um they're long lost uh, mother and son. And so um that's that's why what you're going to hear in the next couple clips is people jockeying for the parts they want to play. And it's Mariah and Mr. Crawford jockeying for Agatha and Frederick so they can rehearse together all the time and they can embrace each other all the well, time. But I think, Henry, this scene would really work much better if we sort of took all of our clothes off <laughs> and embraced one another. I think it would be really true to the mother-son <laughs> 
relationship, you know, when you come into this world, we're both naked and covered in... Fl- no, wait. <laughs> well, Bayard is scandalized, by the way. Our producer, <laughs> the boyfriend, is giving me a look where he's Steam just like, girl, don't the tell ears. them what we get up to in private. <laughs> Bay. <laughs> He's telling me his mother's going to listen to it. Oh. It's going to be great. Because we know the only people who listen to this shout are our mothers. Out, Faze mom. Shout <laughs> out. Um, hi, Faze mom. Um, so, yeah. Um, there are two other characters that you need to know about. And those are the characters of Anne Halt and Amelia. And this is in Lover's Vow. This is in, is in Lover's Vows. It, yes. Anne Halt and Amelia are two characters that are going to be filled by Edmund. And Miss Crawford. What? Who you... Uh, Edmund? I know. Edmund is eventually going to cave. <gasps> Spoilers. Oh, my God. Um, I really should have read the book. Yeah. And so I'll bring this up again later in case you forget. But they are two characters that actually are love interests. And they have a big scene where they tell each other. They are, you know, sort of insinuate that they love each other. Anyway. But, but as I said, Agatha and Frederick. So when they choose the play, there's immediate jockeying for parts. And as I said, it is... Um, uh, Mr. Crawford, who wants Frederick, and he gets it pretty quickly after um, one of my favorite scenes. One thing I did not mention is that the Baron is a part that Mr. Yates wants because it's got a lot of ranting and raving and storming, and that's the height of Mr. Yates's theatrical ambition to be to chew the scenery essentially, like really <laughs> hammy. And that's uh, don't mind me; I'll just be gnawing yeah. on this curtain over here. And after all his bragging about what a good, a good actor it is, it turns out later in the story that you realize, you know, you find out during the theatricals that he's like a terrible actor, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh my god, that guy." <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Yates was particularly pleased. He had been sighing and longing to do the Baron at Ecclesford, had grudged every rant of Lord Ravenshaw's, and been forced to re-rant it all in his own room. To storm through Baron Wildenheim was the height of his theatrical ambition, and with the advantage of knowing half the scenes by heart already, he did now, with the greatest alacrity, offer his services for the part. To do him justice, however, he did not resolve to appropriate it, for remembering that there was some very good ranting ground in Frederick, he professed an equal willingness for that. Henry Crawford was ready to take either. Whichever Mr. Yates did not choose would perfectly satisfy him, and a short parley of compliment ensued. Miss Bertram, feeling all the interest of an Agatha in the question, took on her to decide it, by observing to Mr. Yates that this was a point in which height and figure ought to be considered, and that his being the tallest seemed to fit him peculiarly for the Baron. She was acknowledged to be quite right, and the two parts being accepted accordingly, she was certain of the proper Frederick. So you remember back when Julia Bertram and Mariah Bertram were vying to sit next to Henry Crawford, and I said anyone's offhand remark could have settled it, because mm-hmm. they have to pretend they don't want right. it. The same thing is going on here. Everybody has to pretend that they don't want that. what oh, they want. Oh, Mr. Yates is taller, so he should be. I- exactly. And she took, took, she's like, oh, I have to make the offhand comment. What am I going to say? And one of my favorite um, parts of that passage, though, is when they get into a short parley of compliments, where they're both saying, no, whatever you want, no, whatever you want, and they secretly both have their own agendas, I just think is is really funny. So these folks um, have to behave in a certain way that's a modest way, but they they still are just as selfish as people are today, Um, and that's what's, what's going on there. What happens directly after that, though, 
is that there is a another showdown. It's time for a tense showdown between Mariah and Julia. As you remember, Julia is the younger sister. All right, Kevin, go get the kiddie pole. It's time. You remember Julia is the younger sister of Mariah. They're Julia and Mariah Bertram. There's a rivalry for everything. Yes, for everything. And there is a rivalry for Mr. Crawford, who is a very charming man who they both love. They're both really into him at this point. So if I could have you play the, the next clip, we learn about more about this. Each sister looked anxious, for each felt the best claim to Agatha, and was hoping to have it pressed on her by the rest. Henry Crawford, who meanwhile had taken up the play, and with seeming carelessness was turning over the first act, soon settled the business. "'I must entreat Miss Julia Bertram,' said he, "'not to engage in the part of Agatha, or it will be the ruin of all my solemnity.' "'You must not, indeed you must not,' turning to her. "'I could not stand your countenance dressed up in woe and paleness. "'The many laughs we have had together would infallibly come across me now, "'and Frederick and his knapsack would be obliged to run away.' "'Pleasantly, courteously it was spoken, "'but the manner was lost in the matter to Julia's feelings. "'She saw a glance at Maria, which confirmed the injury to herself. "'It was a scheme, a trick. "'She was slighted, Maria was preferred.' The smile of triumph which Mariah was trying to suppress showed how well it was understood. I love this scene. It's like Mean Girls up in here. Yes, there's so much unspoken that is happening. And Julia is totally clued into what is going on. And um, because Mr. Crawford is really balancing between the two... After he says, oh, Mariah has to be Agatha, he tries to make Julia feel better by saying, oh, you should be Amelia, which is the part Miss Crawford eventually takes. Julia, you should be Amelia because you and I have a scene together, and won't that be great? And he's really flattering to her, but she doesn't buy it. And I love this next clip because that's when the subtext becomes really texty. Without attending to this, Henry Crawford continued his supplication. "'You must oblige us,' said he. "'Indeed you must. "'When you have studied the character, "'I am sure you will feel it suit you. "'Tragedy may be your choice, "'but it will certainly appear that comedy chooses you. "'You will be to visit me in prison "'with a basket of provisions. "'You will not refuse to visit me in prison. "'I think I see you coming in with your basket.' "'The influence of his voice was felt. "'Julia wavered. "'But was he only trying to soothe and pacify her "'and make her overlook the previous affront?' She distrusted him. The slight had been most determined. He was, perhaps, but at treacherous play with her. She looked suspiciously at her sister. Mariah's countenance was to decide it. If she were vexed and alarmed— But Mariah looked all serenity and satisfaction, and Julia well knew that on this ground Mariah could not be happy but at her expense. With hasty indignation, therefore, and a tremulous voice, she said to him— "'You do not seem afraid of not keeping your countenance when I come in with a basket of provisions, though one might have supposed. But it is only as Agatha that I was to be so overpowering.' She stopped. Henry Crawford looked rather foolish, and as if he did not know what to say. Is there something you want to say about this recording? Uh, I, I, You're making a face. He's chomping that. at the bit, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I, I don't mean to uh, denigrate the reading of it, but I feel like she gave uh, Henry Crawford kind of an imperious tone rather than someone who's spinning quickly, trying to keep all the women on his side at all times. 
Um, so I, I want a more oily Henry Crawford that is charming. As we call it in the Riley household, the backpedal. Yeah. <laughs> the backpedal. I, I want more of that backpedaling. Yeah. Wow. The backpedal. Yeah, so your audiobook version isn't so great either, <laughs> I Kristen. I, it's true. I don't like her, Henry Crawford. He should be more chi- charming. And honestly, His name is Henry. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, her Mary Crawford is very strange, too, because she talks in a very slow way. <laughs> uh, in a very, like, weirdly deep way. I guess there's only so it. many variations yeah. of, like, a normal person. It's, it's Not everyone's strange. Jim Dale, but who gets, like, the award for most... Uh, what is it? He, did, he narrated the Harry Potter books, and he won some award for um, having the most individual voices on one audio. Oh, recording. really? Yeah. yeah, he's amazing. Um, anyway, sorry. That's I'm it. amazing too. Me too. I'm amazing too. It's the best. <laughs> You're welcome. So getting back, <laughs> so getting getting back, getting back. I um, we're on our second bottle of wine. Yeah, we are. We are, and you can see what's happening here, and you can see what happens to Julia, and she just takes herself away from the whole situation, and it's like forget it. And what happens next is that Fanny gets a great deal of pressure to join. Now, she has sided with Edmund, of course. Fanny totally believes in Edmund, and she's like, this is wrong, I'm not going to do it. Um, What happens is they're all sort of planning who's going to be who. Julia has dropped out. And they're like, oh, Fanny, um, we want your services. And um, if I could have you play Club 14A... "'You must excuse me, indeed you must excuse me,' cried Fanny, growing more and more red from excessive agitation, and looking distressfully at Edmund, who was kindly observing her, but unwilling to exasperate his brother by interference, gave her only an encouraging smile. Her entreaty had no effect on Tom. He only said again what he had said before. And it was not merely Tom, for the requisition was now backed by Maria and Mr. Crawford and Mr. Yates, with an urgency which differed from his, but in being more gentle or more ceremonious, and which altogether was quite overpowering to Fanny. And before she could breathe after it, Mrs. Norris completed the whole, by thus addressing her in a whisper at once angry and audible. "'What a piece of work here is about nothing! I am quite ashamed of you, Fanny, to make such a difficulty of obliging your cousins in a trifle of this sort. So kind as they are to you! Take the part with a good grace, and let us hear no more of the matter, I entreat.' "'Do not urge her, madam,' said Edmund. "'It is not fair to urge her in this manner. You see she does not like to act. Let her choose for herself, as well as the rest of us. Her judgment may be quite as safely trusted. Do not urge her any more.' "'I am not going to urge her.' replied Mrs. Norris sharply. "'But I shall think her a very obstinate, ungrateful girl, if she does not do what her aunt and cousins wish her. Very ungrateful indeed, considering who and what she is.' Edmund was too angry to speak. But Miss Crawford, looking for a moment with astonished eyes at Mrs. Norris, and then at Fanny, whose tears were beginning to show themselves, immediately said with some keenness, "'I do not like my situation. This place is too hot for me.' and moved away her chair to the opposite side of the table, close to Fanny, saying to her in a kind low whisper as she placed herself, "'Never mind, my dear Miss Price. This is a cross evening. Everybody is cross and teasing. But do not let us mind them.' And with pointed attention continued to talk to her, and endeavour to raise her spirits, in spite of being out of spirits herself. 
By a look at her brother, she prevented any farther entreaty from the theatrical board, and the really good feelings by which she was almost purely governed were rapidly restoring to her all the little she had lost in Edmund's favour. Stuff is a rolling long clip. But there's a lot of stuff that is in there. And I think one of the fascinating things is that Mrs. Norris says to Fanny, Look, we took you in. Like, this is always hanging over her as a character, Fanny Price. Like, she's so beaten down because she has been taken in by this rich family. And now they want her to act. And because she doesn't want to, Mrs. Norris is like, We took you in. Like, this is always hanging over her. It's an insane thing to always you be owe threatened. Us whatever with. we want you to do. Yeah, yeah. And one of the people who saves her from having to do this is Mary Crawford. And so she's having to be. Pay no mind to them. Yeah. <laughs> she has. <laughs> she's having to be obliged to. Mary Crawford, who's a woman who eventually, who she knows that Edmund is falling in love with. I think, again, this is another great example of how Austin just kind of nails how families and groups of friends are where, okay, so the only people who are going to see this thing are them. Yeah, right. This is not going on the road. (laughs) This is not going on the BBC. I mean, there's no one who's going to see this theatrical, but they're all so involved and fighting and sniping and relationships are forming and devolving over something so stupid. But this is how it is. We get into things like this. And think about fights that you have. I can't imagine anyone being upset at Kevin for anything. (laughs) Ever. But if you were, it would be over something really small, I'm sure. Yeah, you just get into these, these weird little bitchy fights and yeah. then every every ammo that piece of ammo that you have you throw at the person mm-hmm. but mrs norris is so evil that she'll pull out the nuclear option just because someone was doesn't want to like act in a play like, i do, do kind of play uh i have seen before where mrs norris is referred to as evil and i think that's maybe a little strong but and i do think it is really kind of bitchy of her to always be telling fanny like you owe us mm-hmm. But I do like how she's kind of sitting there listening to this group of super privileged young people bitch at each other. And she's like, oh, for just God's sake, Fanny, just do it. Yeah. You know, it's like, why do I have to keep listening to this? Just do it. You do get a little annoyed with Fanny, too, because it's like, it's not that big a deal. But But you have to remember. And Edmund being her moral rock, she could never do anything that would disappoint him. Mm -hmm. So she's really caught between who do I oblige, the cousins who took me in or the absent Sir Thomas who took me in. And so at this point, Edmund is still not a part of the play. No, but it's the next day. Wait, but before we move on, I do want to just point out that for people who say that, as I was guilty of before I reread Mansfield Park, for people who always point out um, or accuse Fanny of spinelessness, she does not cave. Right. She doesn't actually say, oh, you're right, Aunt Norris. You know, I've been ungrateful. I should participate. She does not. She sticks to her guns. Yeah, she does. And she continues to stick to her guns all the way up until the climax of this crazy, tense, theatrical sort of situation that they've got themselves into. And it comes to a climax that they just really love because I think everything winds up. And to sort of skip down to like what um, what Maggie was talking about, Edmund does cave. And here's the reason he caves. It's Mary Crawford's breasts. <laughs> Did you say her breasts? Yeah. <laughs> 
That may be the real reason. I mean, that is the reason. But the stated reason, reason is you. <laughs> yes, it was oops steak. Thank you, Bay. <laughs> yes, for all of you out there who are wondering, that was the reason by Uba steak. <laughs> Let's get back to so, why Edmund eventually ends up the moral rock. Yes, in I'll, the story, caves. I'll spare you the I'll spare you the clips actually. But what happens is that um, they have no Anhalt. Miss Crawford is to be Amelia, one half of the the lovers, but they need an Anhalt, and they decide because Edmund will not do it. What they decide is, we're going to get a guy from the neighborhood who can just come in. And oh, I know a guy. I know a guy. Yeah. I know a guy. It'll, It'll be great. Guy. <laughs> and Miss Crawford says to Fanny, and Edmund overhears it, she's like, this is not at all what I signed up for. I don't want to rehearse with... That, that's the wine pouring, gentle listeners. I, I don't want to rehearse with um, some rando. I have to say all of these like really passionate, I love you type things to some random guy, and I'm not comfortable with it. And when Edmund hears this, were you going to say something? No. When Edmund hears this. That's just his face. (laughs) Edmund hears this. He's like, I can't let, because he loves this woman. He's like, I can't let it happen. So he goes to Fanny and he says, Fanny, I just can't let her go through this. I have to do it. Give me your approval. Give me your approbation. I've got to join this play. And Fanny is like devastated. She's like her This is the man she loves. Yes. And his cr- he's crumbling. His, his, her moral rock is crumbling. And um, because he loves this woman, who is also, Fanny is well aware, not that moral of a woman and not somebody she respects. But still it has not your approbation. Can you mention any other measure by which I have a chance of doing equal good? No, I cannot think of anything else. Give me your approbation, then, Fanny. I am not comfortable without it. Oh, cousin— If you are against me, I ought to distrust myself. And yet—but it is absolutely impossible to let Tom go on in this way, riding about the country in quest of anybody who can be persuaded to act, no matter whom. The look of a gentleman is to be enough. I thought you would have entered more into Miss Crawford's feelings. No doubt she will be very glad. It must be a great relief to her, said Fanny, trying for greater warmth of manner. And that's what's going to happen. And so this is the— one more brick in, like, Fanny's descent into madness. I do really love this scene, though, where Edmund comes to Fanny because he's basically looking for justification, outside justification or approval of his decision. It's for her. It's for Mary. It's for Miss Crawford. I have to do it for her. Yeah. Somebody has to step in. It's the lesser of the two evils. I mean, he wants to, let's be honest. It's because of her boobs. He wants wants to to be this role with her. Yeah. That's his disguised selfishness. Yes. He wants to be in this, he wants to be the person who acts the lover with her. And so. Everything else is just rationalization. But he has to get, he has to rationalize it to Fanny. And if she signs off on it, then his conscience will be clear and it's okay. So, um, things do get worse for Fanny in two respects. The first is that she now has to be involved every day in the the play going on around her she doesn't she doesn't choose to act but she sees everything and she's forced into making the costumes by the way and she watches she's actually really interested in just seeing a play like she's never seen one before 
So she watches Mariah, uh, Mariah and Henry Crawford being Agatha and Frederick and embracing each other. And she sees this. She's useful, sometimes as spectator, sometimes as prompter. And so she, she actually prompts them. I mean, she's helping them. She's so involved in their play. I always think it's funny that even though she said she wouldn't do it, she's doing, like, everything for them. Um, she's the slave labor. <gasps> but she lives. Slavery subplot. <laughs> slavery <laughs> symbolism. The Thank white girl having to sew the costumes. It's, oh, it's so slavery. I know. Austin does, unfortunately, compare rich white women to African slaves more than one might wish with modern uh, day sensibilities. But um, I just want to point out here that I really feel for Fanny in this situation because basically the guy that she loves... You were saying she has to wa- she watches and observes everything. So she has to watch him repeatedly proclaim his love in a play, but still rehearse, rehearse, over and rehearse. Over. She lives in terror of Mr. Rushworth becoming jealous, and he's an idiot. But she lives in terror of him, terror of him finally figuring out that Mariah and Mr. Crawford. Well, that's not even what I was referencing. I'm no. just saying that Fanny's basically think of it in high school. Your crush, who is dating someone else, and you have to sit there and watch them together. Yes. And it's just like a dagger in the heart. But that actually happens. So, um, this actually happens. So, Fanny knows that in Act 3 of the play or whatever, there's a scene where Edmund and Mary Crawford will basically have to look each other in the eye and make love to each other in the Regency sense. Um, Which means gaze longingly at each other but far across a room. Say things <laughs> like, oh, like obliquely say I love you and describe a marriage of affection and the little, very little less than a declaration of love being made. So she knows that this is coming up and she lives in fear of having to see it. And then one day when she's by herself in her own room, there's a knock on the door. And it is Mary Crawford. And Mary Crawford is like, Oh my God, I have to do this scene with Edmund and I have to proclaim my love for him. Can you please read Edmund's part and I'll say that stuff to you? And so Fanny's like, fine. And so it's she's not thrilled about it, but she's and like, Fanny's like, yeah, I've been wanting to experiment. <laughs> and a this little, is, with this some is stuff. in the 1999 adaptation. It was weird. <laughs> that was, was one weird. of the weirder parts of that. If you just watched it as a movie, if you hadn't read Mansfield Park, you'd be like, oh, okay, like this movie's all right. But when you got to this scene, you would just be like, what, what is, is happening? happening? Yes. And, um, but soon enough, Edmund knocks on the door and wants Fanny to do the same thing. Now it's like a Regency porno. I know. And imagine if Mary Crawford hadn't been there. I always imagined that, and Fanny would have been able to read to him her part and tell him in this play how you know how much she loves she would them. never have been able to do it i don't think she would have been able to do it either kevin but... what do you think i agree she wouldn't have been able to do it <laughs> deep thoughts yeah. kevin you all were right you really do add conversation <laughs> it's not fair i will say right now to listeners like we tried to get him for episode one and he was on a business trip and so i was like come for episode two but now yeah, his like business I, is like going to the racetrack remember yeah. we covered this i had, but then i had like a million clips and i have all this stuff i want to say and so i told him up front i'm like i don't know how much you're gonna be able to say and it's because i'm monopolizing my own podcast as particular. i've always said i want to be the spice <laughs> and not the meat <laughs> meat <laughs> He never said that. I said that before we started recording, and he made fun of me because that's not a real thing. So I've coined it. Kevin's the spice, and Maggie and I are the meat. 
you know, from all that spicy meat you eat. <laughs> no, it's a metaphor. What's a metaphor? What, yeah. <laughs> Nothing. What's a metaphor with you? <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I don't even know the meaning of the word. No, but this is the emotional climax of the whole story. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Don't apologize. But I was just going back to what you're saying. This before. is serious business. Mm-hmm. I would like. Um, yes, I, I, I. Yeah, I had a clip. I won't make you listen to it, but that's exactly what happens. Um, Edmund and Mary are. Edmund comes in and he's like, "Oh, I wanted to rehearse with Fanny. Oh my God, Mary, you're here." And. They're both so complimentary of each other. They're like, we love Fanny. Isn't it great? We both love Fanny. And Fanny's standing there like she felt herself becoming so much near nothing to either of them. Because even though they're nominally saying, oh, isn't Fanny great? What they're really saying is, aren't you great? She began, and Fanny joined in with all the modest feeling which the idea of representing Edmund was so strongly calculated to inspire— but with looks and voice so truly feminine as to be no very good picture of a man. With such an anhalt, however, Miss Crawford had courage enough, and they had got through half the scene when a tap at the door brought a pause, and the entrance of Edmund the next moment suspended it all. Surprise, consciousness, and pleasure appeared in each of the three on this unexpected meeting, and as Edmund was come on the very same business that had brought Miss Crawford, consciousness and pleasure were likely to be more than momentary in them. He too had his book, and was seeking Fanny to ask her to rehearse with him, and help him prepare for the evening, without knowing Miss Crawford to be in the house. And great was the joy and animation of being thus thrown together, of comparing schemes, and sympathizing in praise of Fanny's kind offices. She could not equal them in their warmth— Her spirits sank under the glow of theirs, and she felt herself becoming too nearly nothing to both, to have any comfort in having been sought by either. She just wants to die, basically. Yeah, she She wants wants to fall through the floor. Yeah, oh my gosh, I was just going to say that. She wants to turn— Get out of my head. Shut up. She wants to (laughs) turn—in my head, when I picture it, she wants to just melt and turn into a puddle and just drip through the slats between the wood uh, floor. And just disappear. It's awful. And then, then she can't. Then she has well, to. Well, because she's an actual person. No, she I mean can't. she's not. She's like not an Alex Mack. She's not an X Men. So <laughs> I gotta drop the Alex Mack reference. <laughs> Bay is o- over the side world herself. of Fanny Prince. <laughs> Like this, ten things only nineties kids would understand. <laughs> Fanny Price is not like Alex Mack, you know. Like, yeah, it fits in with the Hoobastank. <laughs> yeah, we're Although very I, think, I don't actually know who Alex. Mack. I don't get it. Holy shit! I just want to point out though that I am shit. older than everyone else in this room. <laughs> okay, by several years. All right, old lady. I guess oh, you know you're what? not cool. You know what? <laughs> I guess you don't know the in references. <laughs> I am not too old uh, to kick your ass. <laughs> it was running while you were watching the Golden Girls. And you know what? Golden Matt Girls were great. Golden <laughs> Girls and Matlock were great. No, but seriously, who's Alex Mack? Explain this reference. Uh, she go, she turns into a liquid. That's all you need to know. Was this like a Saturday morning show? No, it's, it's Snick. Oh. It's like Snick, you know, like Friday night, Saturday night or whatever. Yeah. It's the evening lineup for Nickelodeon. Oh. She was like My family in. was too poor to have kids. Oh, I'm, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry. For pointing that out. The lead actress was in the uh, 10 Things I Hate About You movie. 
And then immediately God, died. We referenced no, no one ever saw her anywhere. About yeah. you. Okay, so anyway, she wishes that she could die and melt and be gone. That's not a very useful superpower, by the way. It totally is, because she can go under doors. She can move. But can she take things with her? I don't think so. I don't, yeah. I think so how is she going to make all the, that money? How is she going to steal those diamonds? Whew. I'm yeah. just saying. There's a reason why I didn't watch this show. Yeah. It does kind of suck. It sounds now awful. Okay, no, so let's get saying? back to this moment. Then she has to prompt them as they tell each other they love each other. She's she, she is got a front row seat to this happening. And it's it's so painful. It's incredibly painful. They must now rehearse together. Edmund proposed, urged, entreated it, till the lady, not very unwilling at first, could refuse no longer, and Fanny was wanted only to prompt and observe them. She was invested, indeed, with the office of judge and critic, and earnestly desired to exercise it, and tell them all their faults. But from doing so, every feeling within her shrank. She could not, would not, dared not attempt it. Had she been otherwise qualified for criticism, her conscience must have restrained her from venturing at disapprobation. She believed herself to feel too much of it in the aggregate for honesty or safety in particulars. To prompt them must be enough for her, and it was sometimes more than enough, for she could not always pay attention to the book. In watching them she forgot herself, and, agitated by the increasing spirit of Edmund's manner, had once closed the page and turned away exactly as he wanted help. It was imputed to very reasonable weariness, and she was thanked and pitied. But she deserved their pity more than she hoped they would ever surmise. At last the scene was over, and Fanny forced herself to add her praise to the compliments each was giving the other. And when again alone, and able to recall the whole, she was inclined to believe their performance would indeed have such nature and feeling in it as must ensure their credit, and make it a very suffering exhibition to herself. Whatever might be its effect, however, she must stand the brunt of it again that very day. So, uh, speaking about this more generally, we were uh, sort of talking a little bit during the clip. Um, I think these, the entire play scene, as you said, is, is critical and really full of all these sort of interesting layers as you see people um, not say what they mean constantly um, and, and try to get what they want without actually saying it. Um, but I think the entire scene is is one that makes people feel like Fanny Price is a, a fuddy-duddy because it's hard in the modern world to imagine a play causing such consternation for someone. She seems just like a wet blanket. Um, so I think people read her as being more like Charlotte Lucas and Mary Crawford as being, you know, Lizzie Bennet. So they're sort of identifying with Mary Crawford more as this sort of uh, forward person that they want to be in this sort of modern world and and fanny price is this person who's stuck in the past that that seems full of these morals that are are just constraining women that they don't necessarily uh, agree with but it's it's you know if you put yourself sort of back in that time period you can maybe have a little bit more sort of respect and understanding for her virtues that is the longest speech i have ever heard kevin make in my life it was amazing i completely agree like i mean it's fanny Fanny is hard but i think all the women can empathize with this i don't know maybe men can't i should not have said that maybe (laughs) some of us who are more sensitive can empathize 
with this idea of the secret love. Oh, no, I always get the man. Watching it fall <laughs> apart. <laughs> that is not true. In front of your face <laughs> and just being tortured and tortured with watching him fall in love with somebody else. Well, this is what I was saying. I mean, we've all experienced that. I mean, for me, it was especially high school. Like, you always have that crush on a, from afar. And then to see that person with someone else, it just kind of, like, rips you up inside. Yeah, and they, the other thing is they would never have said such emotional things like, uh, you know, that they say in the play in front of her in any other context. So it's almost like she's teleporting into their... She's a voyeur. Yes, married life. And it, it must be just like her mental anguish must be, as it says, so bad. Um, but this is the height of her uh, descent into madness. I guess the low. And then later that night, um, the whole thing comes to a head. Because they're all together, and they're all rehearsing, and she goes. She knows that they're going to act together and say these things without the book, you know, to each other, looking them each other in the eye for the first time. This is it. She knows she shouldn't Don't go. Don't be scared. Because back in Regency times, anything that was going to make you emotional or upset you, it was your duty to avoid it, because the ultimate goal was, like, peace and tranquility in your life. But she goes, and... She's properly punished because somebody doesn't show up and they force her to read the part. And so she's basically being pulled into the play that she doesn't want to be in. And so right when she says, fine, fine, I'll do it. Just leave me alone. I'll read the part out loud. So, you you know, the person who didn't didn't show up can I can stand in right at that moment. Julia Bertram runs into the theater and is like, my father is home. He is in the house this moment. They immediately have this feeling like, oh shit, we're busted. Like they all look at each other. They all are thinking like, what will become of us now? And they're all terrified of Sir Thomas finding out about what they're doing. I bet they're really regretting building that actual stage. Because if it wasn't, they could just kind of hurriedly dissemble it. Like, <laughs> yeah. shove everything yeah. under the couch and that's hope right. that he doesn't notice it. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And Fanny... Being the most sensitive of everybody, basically almost passes out. She's like... (laughs) She's so overcome. (laughs) She is totally overcome. And so everybody looks at each other. All the kids are like, okay, let's go see Sir Thomas. Right? So they go. And Fanny stays behind because she's so modest. She doesn't even class herself with his children. And then the Crawfords are like, Fanny, peace out. And (laughs) she realizes she can't linger. She has no excuse to linger any longer. And this leads up to my favorite passage in the entire book. This is my favorite passage of my favorite book of all time. Oh, my God. And it's very short, but it's, it's Fanny. Kevin and I are holding hands because we're so excited. Having Together. seen, it's Fanny having seen all of the sexual hijinks going on went during the play and knowing Sir Thomas is going to find out about it all and being terrified of it. She has to go to the drawing room where everybody is. Too soon did she find herself at the drawing-room door, and after pausing a moment for what she knew would not come, for a courage which the outside of no door had ever supplied to her, she turned the lock in desperation, and the lights of the drawing-room and all the collected family were before her. She's waiting for the courage which the outside of no door had ever supplied to her. And honestly, when I read this passage, sometimes I get even misty-eyed because... Not only does it show how afraid she is of her own family, it's an echo of the fear that she's been feeling throughout her whole life. 
the courage that the outside of no door had ever supplied to her. She is so timid and imagine all the time she's been waiting, afraid to deal with something that she doesn't want to do. And she's deal also with. been on the other side of the door on the outside a lot. Yeah, she's not a part of the family, really. She is an outside. I think that's an excellent point. And um, then the next sentence where she's, she turns the lock in desperation and all the lights of the drawing room and the collected family were before her. I feel like I can almost see in that sentence the door opening to a well-lit room and it's just opening in front of her. I feel like I, could, I can see it so well. And um, anyway... I just feel for her in that moment. I think her desperation go, comes through so clearly. And, um, yeah, and so that's, that's the theatricals in a nutshell. It's, it's, it's building up to a point where everything's coming to a head. You know, Edmund and Mary Crawford are falling in love, and they're all over each other. Mariah and Mr. Crawford are off dallying, and they're all over each other. And into this, this den of iniquity comes Sir Thomas, and everybody's busted. And Fanny is terrified, and... It just and also I have to say that that line where Julia says, "My father has come. He is in the house this moment." Funny thing about that, that is the last line of volume one of the book, and so having read up to that point and seeing that line, like, "Oh shit, he's back!" Imagine how you would be going through your bookshelf, like, "Where's volume two? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's it's just me. Oh, okay, all right, just me. All right. Well, I think that so. We've spent a lot of time tonight on theatrical for, for good reason. I mean, it's also one of the most memorable parts of the book, I think. Um, but there's still a lot to talk about with Mansfield Park, especially towards the end. A lot of plot happens towards the end of the book. I just needed to get this out. Like, if we don't do an episode three, that's fine with me. because I would actually like to do an episode three because there's a lot of stuff at the end of the book that I think... All right. Is important to discuss. Okay. And we also haven't really... We've we've tapped hands around it. We haven't dug into Fanny's character just herself yet. I had, So I had a really interesting clip. If you think we have a little bit more time, and it is about Julia suffering because Mr. Crawford... You know, the, the blow-up with Mr. Crawford has already mm-hmm. happened. Julia did suffer, however, though Mrs. Grant discerned it not, and though it escaped the notice of many of her own family likewise. She had loved, she did love still, and she had all the suffering which a warm temper and a high spirit were likely to endure under the disappointment of a dear, though irrational hope, with a strong sense of ill-usage. Her heart was sore and angry, and she was capable only of angry consolations. The sister with whom she was used to be on easy terms was now become her greatest enemy. They were alienated from each other, and Julia was not superior to the hope of some distressing end to the attentions which were still carrying on there, some punishment to Mariah for conduct so shameful towards herself, as well as towards Mr. Rushworth. With no material fault of temper, or difference of opinion, to prevent their being very good friends while their interests were the same, the sisters, under such a trial as this, had not affection or principle enough to make them merciful or just, to give them honour or compassion. Maria felt her triumph, and pursued her purpose careless of Julia. And Julia could never see Maria distinguished by Henry Crawford, without trusting that it would create jealousy, and bring a public disturbance at last. Fanny saw, and pitied much of this in Julia, but there was no outward fellowship between them. Julia made no communication, and Fanny took no liberties. They were two solitary sufferers, or connected only by Fanny's consciousness. 
That, to me, is the essence of Fanny. She sits in the corner, and she sees everything. And she's intelligent, and she has empathy, and she knows exactly what is going on. But she is forgotten by everyone. And her consciousness is the only one connecting her to these people. She sees their lives in front of her, but she's not a part of them at all. But she sees and knows everything. And she has a great amount of sympathy, even though Julia really is not worthy of that much sympathy. Fanny, Fanny's heart beats for her, too, because she's like she's watching the man she loves, you know, dally mm-hmm. with someone else. So she's this incredibly empathetic character who knows everything that's going on. She's the quiet mouse in the corner who sees everything. So do you think that Fanny is one of the most misunderstood characters I in literature? I definitely think she is understood. And I think you make a, such a good point, and you've made it over and over again, that, look, in this scene, Fanny has a, a backbone. In this scene, Fanny has a backbone. And it's so easy for us to focus on the scenes when she sort of caves or tries to be the good little girl and forget that she does have a backbone of steel when it really matters. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about that, I think, in our third Mansfield Park episode, which will be coming up. There's a lot of good stuff. All that and the Ewoks. <laughs> Kevin, don't make promise. Don't write checks that your ass can't get. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> Well, thank you for coming. Thank you, Maggie. Oh, wait. We're not done. We're not? Oh, no. What do we have to talk about now? We have, we have other things that we have to discuss. I have some oh, old business. Right. Old business. I have some old business dating back to episode one, which uh, I provided to my mother to listen in advance of its release. And she loved it, of course, because, you know, we're amazing. But she took great umbrage when I apparently uh, mixed up and maybe lied a little bit, which I don't think that I lied. You have to purposefully lie. Anyway, you will remember, gentle, gentle listeners, when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, I mentioned that my mother and I had a bit of a disagreement over one of the lines of dialogue that Mr. Darcy has with Lizzie. Um, and I thought that he was complimenting her, and I said that my mother thought that he was insulting her, and so I asked Kristen to clear up the disagreement. And my mother stormed into my one-bedroom condo that does not have a stage and made very clear to me that I had mixed it up, that she was the one who thought Mr. Darcy was being complimentary. I was the one who thought that he was being insulting. Um, So I want to apologize to my mother (laughs) for making it sound like she was wrong because she's never wrong. (laughs) She's my mother. I am always wrong, and she is always right. So that is the old business that needed to be cleared up publicly. My boyfriend is next to me looking contrite as uh, I stand at the podium and publicly apologize. (laughs) Is he wearing his pearls? He's wearing his pearls. So that was the old business. My mom was right, and I was wrong. I'm saying it clearly. Um, the other business is we need to talk about the wine that we drank. Oh, that's right. Because this is the thing now where we try we to talk tell about the wine. people. So the first bottle was actually one of my favorite types of wine. It's the Apothic Red. It's a winemaker's blend from California. You can find it in your local grocery store or Costco. I think it's delicious. Everyone seemed to so really 2013, enjoy it. right? Yeah, we sucked it down. Yeah, it was really good. Pretty quickly. It was delicious. Could I see the, the back of this, though? I uh, I feel like the description <laughs> leaves a little bit to, to be desired. Uh, it says, inspired by the Apotheca, a mysterious place where wine was blended and stored in 13th century Europe. 
That's really general. <laughs> I feel like they could have done a little bit more research. <laughs> Why think, is it so mysterious? I think it's mysterious because they made it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to actually, Kevin, why don't you talk to us about our second bottle? Just uh, a little more controversial. The second bottle was the Corcoran Vineyards Hunters Run Red from Loudoun County, Virginia. This is a 2009 vintage. I don't know that it's meant to be uh, aged as much as we did. Uh, it got kind of a soft stank flavor on it. <laughs> it and not gross. the kind of hoover stank flavor that goes down easy. It was terrible. And it also had a lot of sediment I, at the bottom. I, yeah, it did have sediment in my glasses, but I actually really <laughs> liked the taste of it. Yeah. I thought it was good. It went down pretty smooth. Wow. And I just want to thank again our special guest, Kevin. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we don't know yet if he will be around for the third installment of Mansfield Park because it's going to depend on his busy schedule of he might not come back after going I didn't to the horse races. Talk at all. I had a wonderful time. Thank you for having me. Uh, you both um, are funny and interesting, and I just enjoyed hearing you, <laughs> you talk about beautiful. everything. You forgot beautiful. And beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Jeez. It's like pulling teeth. <laughs> okay, so Kristen has taken a little bathroom break, so now it's just me and Kevin. This so, will be a surprise for when she Kevin, listens to it later. Tell me your hopes and your dreams. I hope Kristen has a successful trip to the bathroom. As do I. And I dream that she has a successful trip to the bathroom. You dream about your wife going to the bathroom? It's a little weird. Yeah, every night. It's a little weird. I don't think it's weird. <laughs> I do want to point out that Kevin is also full on drinking Kristen's wine. She's, she abandoned. she's abandoned it. This, this, <laughs> this point, this is a mercy killing. <laughs> uh, she has stepped away from the table, and so her wine is now fair game. Exactly. Right. It's for me to enjoy. So, Kevin, um, do you like Ubistink? Uh, I don't know that I know any other songs other than that. I'm pretty sure that's the, the only one yeah. that they have had. I would have assumed they would have been shot into space via some sort of government program to burn <laughs> Along the with worst. the other yeah. garbage. Yeah. Oh my god, they saw Ubus Dank in concert. What? So I don't even know how to respond to that. We might be over. <laughs> That's <laughs> That might be a deal breaker. I've now offended the small so, segment of the listening population that is just The small part of the Venn diagram that's Yeah, there's Jane like the, uh, the Jane Austen fans and then there's the Ubus Dank fans. And where they overlap... Is Bay. Is Bay. <laughs> it's the Bay sliver. I, I don't even know if you can call Bay a Jane Austen fan. He has read Pride and Prejudice. He's now giving me the look of such yeah. indignation. Hey, oh, uh, Kristen's back. back. We're talking stank. How did it go? <laughs> Speaking of stank, how did it go? Okay. <laughs> I thought we were talking about Jane Austen and being highfalutin and classy, and I come back here to bathroom uh, bathroom Well, that's what Kevin and I really do. We're not talking about bathroom. We're talking about stank. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the stank. <laughs> the stank. <laughs>